Good morning and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is John Tyson and the, the panel this morning to my right is Judge Valerie Zachary, to my left is Judge Michael Steiding. Our courtroom staff today is Eddie Saunders who is our clerk and Richard Milliard who is here as the court's marshal. We have one case on the docket for argument this morning, State of North Carolina versus James Allen Minyard. Council is present, and uh, before we get started, I'd like to welcome the large number of law students and interns who are here today. Uh, we appreciate your service to the court this summer, and we hope you find the arguments uh, enlightening. You do have a rare treat today in that uh, you're seeing one of your own argue and that uh, the state bar has approved uh, Ms. Kosick, Kosick to argue um, and she is a law student at Wake Forest University School of Law. So you picked a good morning to be here. Um, so without, is there any further preliminary matters to come before the court? Okay, so without further uh, delays, we will hear from the appellant. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Kaylee Chozek, and I represent the appellant, James Allen Minyard, in today's case. Your Honors, we'd like to reserve the remaining time for rebuttal. Okay, got that. A defendant's due process right to be tried and convicted while competent is fundamental to the adversarial system, and judges must always be alert to circumstances changing in trial that show that competency issues have arisen. When a bona fide doubt as to the defendant's competency arises, the trial judge must pause trial and assess whether the defendant is competent to proceed. Where a trial court fails to do so, the only appropriate remedies are either a new trial or a retrospective competency hearing. Although the underlying claim here is clearly unfortunate, it's undisputed that a bona fide doubt as to Minyard's competency arose during his trial. As a result, his competency was in question at the time of his conviction, and because the trial court failed to hold a competency hearing at the time, a new trial is required under the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision in sides. What, what was the substantial evidence of defendant's incompetence? Your Honor, both this court in 2014 and the Mar Court, as seen on page 103 of the record, stated that there was clearly uh, evidence of his incompetence, given that the defendant was lethargic, slumped over, stuporous, and having difficulty staying with the court or remaining vertical. So the fact that he was lying there while the jury was coming in and out asking questions shows that there was this bona fide doubt, and this court has already found so in 2014. The Mar Court erroneously held that Minyard's competency did not arise during a critical stage of trial, and therefore it was harmless error. However, the main question before this court today isn't whether the jury would have convicted Minyard regardless, but whether or not he was convicted while he was incompetent. Because the right to be competent during trial is applicable through the return of the verdict, the failure to uphold that right is prejudicial per se. So you have no, you have no independent argument as to why a defendant would be prejudiced um, by his absence during jury de deliberations? 
Your Honor, if this court does choose to apply the harmless error standard, then we believe that Minyard was, that the state failed to prove that Minyard was not prejudiced beyond a reasonable doubt because he was, given the fact that the jury is coming in, asking questions, seeing him lying there, it's impossible for the state to have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he wasn't prejudiced, prejudiced by that and that the jury didn't take that into consideration. Do you know what rendered him incompetent? Your Honor, it's unclear based on the medical records. However, as seen on page 60 of the record, it is clear that it was not as a result of any sort of drugs or alcohol that he may have voluntarily ingested. Well, he went to the hospital, right? Yes, Your Honor. Did they find anything wrong with him? Your Honor, it's unclear in the med based on the medical records, but it does say on page 54 of the record that there was a communication barrier at the time given his altered mental state. And Minyard believes that it had something potentially to do with his diabetes, and that may have been a part of the incompetency. However, at this time, there's no way to determine based on the medical records what actually happened, which is why this court should grant him a new trial, because it's entirely too late, more than 10 years after trial, to determine what rendered him incompetent in a retrospective competency hearing. Well, now, I'm just curious, did they check his blood sugar level or anything? Your Honor, the medical records are not complete as to what exactly it was that caused it, whether it was his blood sugar levels, whether it related to his diabetes or not. However, this does show that there was a bona fide doubt as to his competency and that it wasn't anything that he had voluntarily ingested to cause him to pass out at that time. Since the um, decision in SIDES has been yet another decision, and there's been a memorandum of additional authority to file uh, post-briefing, and that is the case of State versus Flo. Um, do you want to address and compare this case before us to both sides and flow and talk about the absence of a history of mental illness that was present in sides, that was not present in flow, and the degree to which the defendant brought about the actions on himself? Yes, Your Honor. As the court stated in sides, it's not required for there to be this prior medical issues, prior medical history relating to competency. And in that case, that's why the court reversed it because the court stated that trial judges must always be alert to change in circumstances and that competency issues can arise during trial that may, may require a competency hearing mid-trial. How does the court balance the need for uh, defendants not unilaterally disrupt, disrupt proceedings as opposed to um, legitimate issues that could cause a delay in the proceedings? Yes, Your Honor. As stated by uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court in State v. Young in 1977, which shows that this is a long-standing tradition, the trial court has a constitutional duty to sua sponte, inquire into <clears throat> a defendant's competency if there is this bona fide doubt, if there is substantial evidence. And that relies on a good faith decision. And in this case, there clearly was a bona fide doubt. And there may be defendants who in the future could potentially not have, there may not be substantial evidence. And that's exactly what we see in flow. 
But the important distinction between this case and what happened in Flo is that the court there actually paused and assessed whether the defendant was competent to proceed. And here, that did not happen. There was not a pause, and the trial court did not look into the defendant's competency. But in this case, didn't the, the uh, defense counsel did not make any motion or make any request of Judge uh, Jerry Cash Martin, you know, to look into the situation, if I recall correctly? Your Honor, well, defense counsel probably should have. It, that is why this is something that relies on the judges, and that's something that, you know, for the past 50 plus years since State be Young, it's been clearly the requirement of the trial judge to do, to follow up with that. And the Supreme Court confirmed that in flow, which was decided last month, they clearly stated that it's the trial judge's duty to actively elicit adequate information in order to determine whether or not the defendant is competent to proceed. And so it's the trial judge's duty to elicit this information and to make sure the defendant is competent before they proceed. So in flow, the trial judge paused trial before the jury began deliberations, but after the close of all evidence and looked into whether or not the defendant's suicide was something that he had done well competent. The trial judge obtained a video of the defendant's attempted suicide at the jail and also spoke with multiple other parties, investigators and people, and checked in on the defendant in the hospital before deciding that the defendant had competently and voluntarily waived his right to be present and then allowed the jury to deliberate without the defendant present. Are, are you contending that defendant um, attempted suicide? No, Your Honor, not in Minyard's case. So in this case, what is, what is it that, what's your contention that Judge Jerry Cash Martin should have done? Your Honor, as the trial court did in flow, the trial judge here should have paused trial, should have paused the jury deliberations and had them take a recess while looking into what had actually happened to Minyard. If they had obtained, if the trial judge had obtained the Minyard's medical records, he clearly would have seen that Minyard did not actually ingest any sort of toxins or any sort of drugs or um, alcohol, and then would have been able to further speak with Minyard or look into other, um, speak with the defense counsel, any sort of other evidence that may have provided, shed light on whether or not he was competent to proceed. And that he had, that if he was competent and then he had voluntarily waived his presence, then the trial judge could have had the jury return to deliberations and everything would have continued as it did. However, because there's no way of knowing whether or not Minyard was competent at the time, that is why he deserves a new trial. Everyone's presumed to be competent, correct? As long as there is, yes, Your Honor, as long as there is no bona fide doubt. So in terms of, um, and to overcome the presumption, it must be proven by clear cogent convincing evidence. Is that correct as well? Yes, Your Honor. So in terms of imposing on the trial judge a duty uh, to act without motion or without the defense or the, the attorney, uh, why is the judge required to do something to overcome a presumption of competence themselves without any action by the defendant or defendant's counsel? 
Well, Your Honor, if there is the substantial evidence that comes to light that shows that there is a bona fide doubt relating to the defendant's conduct. But you want to put that burden on the, on the court and not on the defendant themselves, right? Your Honor, the burden is already on the court. As the North Carolina Supreme Court has clearly stated in State v. Young and confirmed in sides and flow in, in these more, more recent cases, the burden's already on the judge to simply pause that trial and be alert to a change in circumstances relating to the defendant's competency. Here, not only did the trial judge not follow up with Minyard after he was sent to the hospital, he, it's clear that he was already impatient with Minyard before any sort of allegation regarding drugs or anything like that came up. As seen on page 220 of the trial transcript, the judge noticed that Minyard was having a problem and he stated to him, try to stay with us consciously, not physically, if you will. If you go out, we're going to have to go on without you. Try to stay vertical. And so he had already noticed that Minyard was lying there in a courtroom queue, unable to sit at council table where he had previously been sitting for the rest of trial. And then the next page, the judge allows the jurors to re-enter the courtroom and ask their first question. So the jurors are seeing him not sitting at council table where he's been sitting for the duration of trial, but instead lying there in a courtroom queue. And then as seen on page 220, 222 of the trial transcript, the judge continues to speak to Minyard with no response from him, stating, you've been able to join us all the way through this, and let me suggest you continue to do that. If you go out on us, I will revoke your conditions of release and order you arrested, and if you're not healthy, we'll continue on without you. And this is all before there was any mention of him allegedly taking drugs or anything like that. And so the trial judge already recognized that there was an issue and that Minyard was not fully there at the trial consciously, but he continued to attempt to proceed without him and allow the jury to ask him questions. It was only after the allegation of potential drugs came up that he then sent him to the hospital. However, this is again distinguishable from what happened in flow where the trial judge was able to have multiple conversations with the defendant before he attempted suicide. He was having multiple communications with him regarding his competency and things like that. And that's why the North Carolina Supreme Court affirmed, the, affirmed this court and affirmed that the trial judge was right in continuing proceedings because he had taken the time to not only confirm that the defendant was competent in speaking with him, but also conducting an, a fact-intensive inquiry into the defendant's competence before then proceeding. And the North Carolina Supreme Court said that he would not have to conduct this additional hearing because he had already paused trial and taken multiple hours to assess. In this case, the trial judge never once paused, never asked the jury to recess while he assessed whether or not Minyard was competent and instead simply proceeded let the jury finish deliberating, let them ask multiple questions while Minyard was lying there, passed out, and then after he had been taken to the hospital. And throughout all of that, there's no, there's no <clears throat> confirmation that Minyard is competent through that part of trial. Was he in fact passed out? 
Your Honor, it's unclear from the record whether he was fully passed out that entire time, but he was clearly incapable of responding, and it seems as if he was in and out of consciousness. Let me ask you this, too. Isn't it also true at the time all this occurred, all the evidence was in, and the jury had been already um, uh, instructed and was deliberating? So how can your client, if the trial is over, and the jury's deliberating, how can your client show any prejudice from being gone just one afternoon by his own hand? Well, Your Honor, trial goes through the return of the jury verdict as seen by the United States Supreme Court in multiple competency cases. But my question is, well, how can he show prejudice from the brief time that he was absent by his own actions? Your Honor, if this court is asking whether, if this court wants to apply harmless error, then it would be the state's burden to prove that there was no prejudice beyond a reasonable doubt. However, he was prejudiced not only because the jury is seeing him during deliberations, coming in and asking questions and seeing him lying there passed out, but also a defendant in general has an option to engage in plea negotiations up through the return of a jury verdict. And that's something that a defendant could participate in state or speaking with their attorney about through the return of the verdict. So at that time, if Minyard had wanted to engage in some sort of plea negotiations, that's one example of, some, of a right that's being taken away if he's not competent at that time to do so. Well, the, your, your client was represented by counsel at trial. Yes, Your Honor. What duty, what duty does the defense counsel have in, the, in a situation like this to take some action on behalf of the client and not rely on the court to act on its own motion? Your Honor, well, the defense attorney has the option to raise competency issues, and, and that is something that probably should have been done. In this case, the duty is still, does still fall on the court to do so, even where the defense counsel or the defendant himself doesn't actually take the steps to bring up these competency issues. So you would want, you would want the court to act on the, client, on the defendant's behalf and not just be calling balls and strikes, correct? Yes, Your Honor. If defense counsel fails to do so in that instance, then that's something that the North Carolina appellate courts have consistently held is a duty that falls on the trial judge. Furthermore, the Mark Court was erroneous in holding that this court, in holding that the trial judge did not, um, did not assess his competency at that time was okay because it was not during a critical stage of trial because it was during the jury deliberations. However, no court has ever required, no appellate court in North Carolina, no the United States Supreme Court has not ever required this critical stage in relation to competency. And specifically, the North Carolina Supreme Court in sides and flow do not use that requirement. They do not lay out this standard of a critical stage or critical phase of trial. They simply state that at any point, circumstances may arise during trial that suggest that a defendant may have competency issues and the court should look into it at that time. And furthermore, this court in 2014 did find that a competency hearing would have been necessary based on what happened during trial. 
and the, this court clearly stated that the above facts provide ample evidence to raise a bona fide doubt because the inability to stay vertical or obey the commands of courtroom personnel certainly give rise to that bona fide doubt. And the court there didn't mention, this court didn't mention anything about whether or not this was during a critical phase or a critical stage, but instead said that because he had potentially voluntarily taken drugs as a result that he had waived his right, which was specifically overruled in sides. And so this court should not hold that there's a requirement of any sort of critical stage of trial, but instead that a tri trial does go through the end of the verdict as the United States Supreme Court has held, and that jury deliberations do fall within this right to competency. If a defendant is on bond and during a break in the trial or lunch, goes out and eats lunch and consumes alcohol and comes back to court drunk, on volition, what is the duty, if anything, of the trial court? Your Honor, the trial court there, as long, assuming that the defendant was competent when he went out and- Again, and no, no history, no, no prior warning to the court. Everything's been going along the way it should, and all of a sudden, uh, this client or this defendant shows back in court uh, intoxicated. Your Honor, well then, at that time, if the trial judge pauses trial and sends the defendant to go get tested, confirms that it was alcohol and that the defendant had just voluntarily gone out and consumed a ton of alcohol, then that would fall within waiving his right to be present at the trial. But it has to be determined that that was something that he competently did. And that's what sides clearly distinguishes the right to be present at trial between the right to be competent. And that's where it clearly states that competency is a necessary predicate to voluntariness because a defendant cannot have voluntarily waived his right to be at trial if he wasn't competent to do so in the first place. And in that case, they found that the, that the trial judge had put the cart before the horse in holding that the defendant had waived his right to be present when he attempted suicide in that case. But you would put that burden on the trial court and not on defendant's counsel to make that inquiry or to bring it to the court's attention? Your Honor, yes, the burden is on the trial court in that case if they notice a bona fide doubt. And oftentimes the evidence may arise from the defense counsel or from the defendant himself. And in this case, the defendant, the issues with the defendant's competency first arose from defense counsel himself, as seen on page 220 of the trial transcript, he noted to the judge, when the judge asked Minyard to take a seat back at counsel table, as he had done, the, his defense counsel noted to him that he was having a little problem, and that's why he wasn't able to join. And so do, you, that, do you think that the, the decision in flow limits sides? No, Your Honor. The decision in flow simply provides an example of what happens when a trial judge actually does pause and look into a defendant's competency. So it doesn't limit it, it simply shows what's on the other side of that line that was drawn initially in sides. And so- they, Where does this case fall in, as between those two? Your Honor, this case falls closer to what happened in sides because the trial judge did not actually pause 
and consider what was happening with Minyard, whereas in Flow, the trial judge did pause. It gathered evidence, spoke with defense counsel and the state, and watched the video of the actual attempted suicide and gathered all of this evidence while trial was paused before then continuing, whereas as in sides, the trial judge in Minyard did not pause at all and did not look into the hospital records, never actually followed up with Minyard himself. And as seen on page 262 of the trial transcript, when Minyard returned to the court the next day for the habitual felony proceeding and sentencing, Minyard told the trial judge that he was hoping to testify the day before, but unfortunate circumstances didn't allow him to. Now he had testified the day before, but that shows that he had no recollection of him. And as the Mar Court noted, the trial judge never followed up on that unusual statement. He didn't ask Minyard what he meant by the fact that he didn't testify yesterday or what unfortunate circumstances he was talking about. He didn't ask for medical records or anything like that. He simply proceeded. And so but that- Didn't Judge Martin um, discuss the matter with the attorneys and try to discuss it with, Min with Minyard? When, when, when the defendant, you know, began lying down in the pew and, uh, uh, and wouldn't get one come to defense table? Your Honor, he attempted to speak to Minyard. However, he received no response and he noted that he could see Minyard was lying there and he kept asking him to stay with the court in an attempt to be conscious, but- All, all this is on the record. Yes, Your Honor. And he spoke with, uh, with the attorneys as well, right? Y yes, Your Honor. However, he had no response from Minyard and, and wasn't receiving any sort of feedback from him, and that should have been the first sign as to the fact that there was this bona fide doubt, which is exactly, again, what the Mar Court held as seen on page 103 of the record, and what this court held, that because of the fact that the defendant was stuporous and lethargic and incapable of staying with the court, that was a bona fide doubt. And therefore, as a result, this court should grant him a new trial. When your client returned the following day, was there any other episodes or indication to put the trial court on notice of any deficiencies the following day? Your Honor, aside from the fact that he said, I was hoping to testify yesterday and that he didn't recall the day before, that there weren't any other signs. So the fact that he was back in court the next, the, the next morning, even after this occurred, uh, how does that uh, ameliorate any prejudice to your client? Your Honor, the fact did that he- Did he ask to testify? Did he ask to testify that day? Yes. No, Your Honor, he decided not to because he was unclear about whether or not he had already testified and, and he said that he would pass up that right at that time. However, that doesn't, the fact that he was able to return doesn't affect the fact that he was likely incompetent the day before during his actual trial. What, why do you think he was likely incompetent? Your Honor, apparently there's nothing in the medical records to indicate that he was incompetent. Well, Your Honor, the medical records clearly state that there, he was in an altered mental state, which shows that there was likely incompetence. And again, the, the fact that he was unable to communicate with the court, unable to respond to anything, that he was lying there passed out, all of that are, demonstrate signs of the fact that he was likely incompetent. 
you have four minutes left. Would you like to reserve the remainder? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Court will hear from um, the state. Ms. Lawrence, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the court. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. My name is Sherry Lawrence. I'm a special deputy attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this case. There was not a bona fide doubt as to defendant's competency prior to his voluntary overdose during jury deliberations. The record shows that defendant's competency was not in question at the time of his overdose. Without additional and substantial evidence that the defendant did not have the cap capacity to proceed, the trial court was not required to conduct a competency hearing due solely to defendant's voluntary overdose. Now this is the second time the case has been back, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And uh, Judge Irwin, um, on the Marr hearing, the motion for appropriate relief, uh, did find some deficiencies in the trial, correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And so if, if Judge Irwin found and actually set aside the uh, habitual felon conviction, is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And the state's not contesting that? In there's no cross appeal. There's no cross appeal. The state has not filed a petition for certain. So, that. so that's become the law of the case. Yes, Your Honor, as so, to that portion. Okay, so if, if there was some deficiency found by the trial court on the remand, um, why does that not taint, if you want to use that word, why does that not lend some credence to defendants' argument about the impact at trial? Yes, Your Honor. Um, the main reason is state versus flow. Um, the trial court, when he decided this case, he was not—he did not have the benefit of state versus flow that was issued by our state supreme court on April the 28th, after briefing, briefing in this case, as well as after um, his order was issued as well. So state versus flow provided some additional explanation about this area of law. In addition, state versus flow. Um, seems to limit the application of sides. Uh, sides dropped the footnote stating that to the extent that this court's opinion in sides um, or the Court of Appeals Court's analysis in Minyard conflicts with the court's opinion in sides, Minyard is overruled. However, the court in sides did not limit the factual basis despite saying that these are fact-intensive inquiries. State versus flow came back and reaffirmed that, stating that these are fact-intensive inquiries, and also reaffirmed the time period that is important and the time period that applies in determining a competency issue. So state versus flow does limit sides, did not expressly overrule sides, however, provided additional explanation for ruling on issues in this area. So based upon flow, and the trial court was not um, did not have the benefit of flow. Flow is very similar to this case. Flow draws a di direct distinction between situations where a defendant uh, has a prior mental health history and situations where a defendant does not have a prior mental health history. In state versus size, as this court is aware, the defendant in that case did have a prior mental health history. In fact, um, it was stated that she had suffered from some mood disorders and things of that nature. Um, here, we do not have that. In State versus Flow, the defendant did not have a prior mental health uh, history. There was no concern about his mental health 
prior to proceeding to trial. There was no prior uh, evaluations or orders stating that he was incapable to proceed to trial at any point. Um, so I would think that that is the prime distinction that the court is trying to give the appellate courts and trial courts in state versus flow, that there is a distinction and that it does matter. And you look at that prior history. Neither, neither party cited state versus flow in their briefs, did they? That is correct because it came out after briefing on April the 28th. Not this court's opinion. I'm sorry? Not this court's opinion in flow. Yes, Your Honor, that is correct. So why didn't the state choose to rely on the precedent of flow from this court in its brief? In terms of in this case? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, for this case, briefing occurred prior to state versus, I guess, the Supreme Court's case of state versus flow. Let me just be clear. But, I'm sorry. But the, I don't think this court's opinion was stayed, was it? So it was still precedential. However, State versus Sides at that time period was controlling in light of the fact it was a Supreme Court case and the footnote that was dropped in State versus Sides regarding this particular case. So State versus Flow from our State Supreme Court uh, clarified that area of law and drew that direct distinction as to uh, situations where there's a prior mental health history and situations where a defendant does not have that prior mental health history. But the Supreme Court affirmed the decision of this court in flow. Yes, Your Honor. So I, I don't understand if that had a bearing on the case, if there was a precedent out there from either court that had not been stayed, why the court would not have chosen to rely on this court's opinion in flow in its briefing. Your Honor, I, in this particular case, the, there's precedent from a state Supreme Court. And in this case, the state was bound by state versus sides, as well as the trial court was bound by state versus sides. So there was no additional law clarifying the law under sides. So I think it would have been disrespectful and against all, I guess, rules of law to disregard the state Supreme Court's opinion um, for an opinion of this court when the court was specific as to what the law was at that time. So, However, so even even if this court's opinion in state versus flow was subject to further review, it was not stayed and, and the states or either party could have certainly brought it to the court's attention that there are now two lines of authority here sure. and which way this would fall in relation to that. But neither party chose to do that. No, Your Honor, just in light of the state Supreme Court opinion in state versus sides okay. um, and having to honor that opinion. Well, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked defense counsel. Uh, how does state versus flow, either this court's opinion that was affirmed by the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court's opinion, either one, how does that balance or how does that, what effect does it now have on this case? It, it has a, um, a, tr a huge effect because it, it reaffirms that a defendant can voluntarily absent himself from his proceedings, his trial proceedings, where there's no prior history of his mental health issues or any concerns at the time of his attempted suicide or other voluntary act. And I think that word voluntary is very important. It's important um, because this is not something that was brought about without the defendant's consent. These were voluntary acts. In fact, the defendant conceded in his original brief to this court that um, 
despite these being voluntary, this being voluntary intoxication, that's irrelevant. So in his original brief, he considered, conceded that these were voluntary acts. Uh, so that's not into question the voluntariness of it. So we would contend that flow is, provides that additional authority directly provides that there is a distinction that should be made. In State versus Sides, the Sides Supreme Court seemed to talk a little bit about that distinction, but never really reached that, uh, but did affirm that it's not a bright line rule and did affirm that it is, in fact, intensive inquiry that should be made. What's the state's <laughs> position on the relative responsibility of defendants, defense counsel, and the trial court uh, in order to bring these matters and to put something on the record as opposed to putting the burden on the trial court to act on its own motion? Uh, generally speaking, um, well, as applied to this case, most importantly, the defendant was represented by counsel. So counsel does have the responsibility and the duty to uh, be alert and to realize that his client, what his client is or is not experiencing. In fact, this trial counsel never objected to the trial court's removal order under 1032, 15-8-1032, never raised any question as to competency. It is noted in the record on appeal that once defense counsel said, we're having a little problem here, um, there was a bench conference. It was a bench conference with the defendant's attorneys and the prosecutor uh, with the court. And after that point, that's when the jury was brought in for that first question. And that's important because the defendant's attorney never stated, hey, there's something going on with my client. And it's important because he's the one that has direct contact with his client throughout the trial process. He's having those uh, interactions. He never reported, I can't communicate with him effectively. So there was no mentioning of that. The trial court does have a duty to sua sponte, uh, do a competency hearing when there is a bona fide doubt that arises as to the defendant's competency. So use the <clears throat> example that I used earlier, uh, defendants on bond, breaking the proceedings, lunch, defendant goes out and has alcohol and comes back to the court intoxicated. What Take it from there and tell me where the, re the relative burdens lie on the court at that point. I think it starts with one, it being voluntary intoxication, which puts it in a different state. In the um, absence of any prior indication? Yes, Your Honor, with the absence of any prior indication as to a mental health concern um, during the trial proceeding. So it does put it in a different case. And at that point, uh, once a defendant returns, it is incumbent upon his counsel to first, uh, through his interactions, to detect whether or not there's any issue going on. Okay, at defendant <clears throat> counsel is a potted plant, or maybe drunk themselves, which has happened. Uh, at that point, what does the court do? The trial court does have a duty to sua sponte, hold a competency or hearing, only if there's substantial evidence uh, as to uh, his, his lack of competency prior to the attempted voluntary act and attempted suicide as the court stated in Flo. So that timing is very, very important. In fact, Flo reaffirms that timing is very important because throughout the opinion, the court says, and the court says at the time of the suicide. The question is whether or not he was capable of proceeding at the time of the attempted suicide. And the court says that multiple times um, during his, throughout that flow opinion, which signals to the appellate courts and the trial courts that timing is very important. 
um, when it comes to that. Returning to your honors hypothetical, um, a suicide attempt alone does not trigger that competency hearing. The flow court reaffirmed that. I think side was not clear in terms of exactly when this hearing is required. Flow from our state Supreme Court affirmed that, drew the distinction, number one, that there's a difference between the prior a defendant with prior mental health history and a defendant that who does not have one, as well as the fact that the timing is important and that suicide alone or any other attempted voluntary act does not automatically guarantee the defendant a competency hearing. Um, the court drew from U.S. Supreme Court law under Taylor versus United States that uh, utilized Rule 43 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure in stating that the trial proceedings will go on if the defendant voluntarily absents himself from those proceedings through a voluntary act. Does it make a difference in your argument that the, um, that the hospital found that he had not actually ingested any um, drugs or alcohol? No, Your Honor. Uh, if anything, I would say that really bolsters the state's positions as to um, the defend this being a delay tactic. Uh, in fact, the defendant's own witness, I think it was Ms. Tony or Ms. Gant, stated that he was concerned about the outcome of the trial. So this didn't happen randomly during the middle, in the middle of his evidence or in the middle of the state's evidence. It was during jury deliberations after the trial court specifically, specifically re responded to defendant's request to leave the courtroom. He asked the trial court, can I leave the courtroom? Trial court said, no, unless it's with your lawyer. He disobeyed that order and he asked, the, can't go into the lobby or anything disobeyed the order and went outside during that 28-minute interval and returned and somehow made his way to the courtroom despite his alleged incapacity to proceed and was able to then fall out in the courtroom. This court still has to consider the record and the facts on the record and all those facts are on the record as to things that occurred. It's not the trial court did not find that the defendant was laying on the pew in, in vision of the jury. There was no finding as to that. Um, in fact, he stated, he asked the, both parties whether or not they wanted to have an instruction as to the trial court as to the defendant's absence. Defense counsel said, no, let's not bring attention to it. State concurred with that, so they did not do that. And again, the defendant is represented by his attorney. It was a very short interval. There were four jury questions, two of which were, four of which were, the first one asked, is there a transcript of a DVD? The answer is no. There's nothing that could have changed that. The defendant's presence would not have changed it. Asked the question two, can we review the 10 minutes of the, the victim's DVD? Yes, it was already previously published evidence before this jury. The trial court had the discretion under statute to allow the jury to review that evidence that was previously admitted. Defendant's attorney did not object. And the third question was, can we see the defendant's statement? This was previously admitted, uh, however, never published. However, again, the trial court has the discretion to do that. And the fourth question was, what was the date of Amanda's surgery? The trial court gave the general instruction, is your duty to recall the evidence? Based on those three questions, there was nothing that the defendant's presence would have done to change the outcome, the jury's outcome in this particular case. Now, Ms. Lawrence, the, uh, 
counsel for the defense has argued that we don't parse out the relative importance of different stages of the trial, that the right of the defendant to be present is from start to finish at all. And so I understand, and I raise the question of the timing of when this occurred. Trial's over. Jury's deliberating. But they have raised the point that even though that's true, that the defendant still had a right to be there until that judgment, that sentence was, the jury returned and judgment was entered. And that we shouldn't look at the, quote, relative importance of one part of the proceeding versus another. How do you respond to that? My response to that is the, tr the Supreme Court's flow opinion. The Supreme Court specifically set out that timing is important <coughs> and that you can indeed look at that timing and that the relevant time is would at that, the would time. Would that go to prejudice? Yes, Your Honor. It would go to prejudice? Absolutely. As to whether or not any alleged error was harmless error um, or not. So had this occurred during the case in chief or had this occurred when uh, the defendant wanted to testify and became incapacitated, would that have a bearing on the degree that we look at this or the importance of the timing? I think it would. Um, however, I think it still goes back to the time at which the alleged act, voluntary act occurred. And the Supreme Court looks at at the time of the attempted suicide or the attempted voluntary act in this case. And I think it would depend on a lot of those factors. I guess that factor as to the timing of the procedure, as well as was there any prior mental health history for that defendant? Um, because the flow opinion definitely confirms all of those things are relevant factors to consider in the court's analysis and reaffirms that these are fact-intensive inquiries based on the facts of each case. So now, are you arguing a harmless error analysis or are you arguing no, no error at all? Your Honor, in light of state versus flow, um, we are arguing no error. In light of state versus flow and the additional the additional explanation in this particular area and the distinction that is drawn um, and the limits that flow has placed on sides of that there's no error. So you, do you agree that we're dealing with a constitutional error if one occurred? Yes, Your Honor. And if there was, and you agree that the defendant does have the right to be present at all stages of the trial? Yes, Your Honor, depending on the circumstances under which he absents himself. Right, I agree with that. So if there was error, do you still feel, if we, if we see there was error, that we would have to then do a harmless error analysis? Yes, Your Honor. Um, that a hum harmless error analysis would be sufficient. Now that was briefed by both parties, wasn't That's it? That's correct. So up until the time that we received the briefs, that was the position that the state was taking? That is correct. That, that if there was error, that we that was not harmless, not prejudicial. Well, I, I think, and let me backtrack for a second. In terms of um, the state's response at the trial level, the state, I guess, did not affirmatively state that it was error. However, did present an alternative argument right. um, of harmless error. However, in light of state versus sides being then the only controlling precedent for this particular case, um, the state did not contest that size applied. The state did not contest um, that affirmatively. 
if that answers your question. Okay, on page 20 of your brief. Yes, Your Honor. Um, first paragraph, harmless error applies. Yes, Your Honor. So and that, based on the trial court's order under sides, yes, Your Honor. Okay. So up until flow, that was the state's position? That is correct, Your Honor. And it's the state's position that flow provides that additional analysis and distinction and clearly does limit sides and clearly sets out that distinction. So if we, if, if is your contention as an alternative basis to sustain the trial court, we would engage in that analysis or would we have to now under flow just look at it as whether or not error occurred at all? If I understand your honor's question correctly to apply flow and under flow to um, determine whether or not there was substantial evidence that he lacked capacity. Does flow now hold that there was no error or does flow still require us to do a harmless error analysis? Under flow as applied to this case, um, there's no, there is no error uh, in light of the similarity of flow uh, factually. Okay, if we find error, do you still rely on your brief and your arguments for yes, harmless error? Yes, Your Honor, that is correct. Um, however, this, the state does ask for this court to find no error in light of state versus flow. Um, Do you contend that Judge Martin um, conducted an inquiry into defendant's competence or capacity? Uh, Your Honor, yes, I would say he did um, stop the proceedings to address the defendant's capacity. Whether it was a full competency hearing, no. Um, in flow, it was not a full competency hearing. Um, in flow, the trial, the court stated that the trial court's interactions with the defendant are important and things to look at. So looking at what the trial court did here, the trial court did pause the proceedings and did look at, well, first, what's going on once defense counsel said there's a problem. And he received information from the defendant's own friends or witnesses that the defendant had overdosed. And I he asked for clarification from Ms. Gantt. Did he overdose? He, she said, uh-huh. And it says, in the, answered in the affirmative within the transcript. In addition, Mrs. Tony piped in and stated um, he had more than he should have. Um, the trial court then took that all into consideration, um, entered full findings under 15-18-32, and considered all the events that had happened. Um, we can't discount the fact that he had just 28 minutes prior to leaving the court, the trial court had just told the defendant not to leave the courtroom. The defendant instead left the courtroom, then stumbles up and, and presents himself in that format. And a witness affirms he was concerned about the verdict. And the trial court also did make a finding that um, his acts were done, voluntary acts were done to garner sympathy from the jury. Was there anything <clears throat> in the defendant's conduct prior to the break that should have put the trial court on notice what prompted the colloquy between the court and the defendant in response to the defendant's re, uh, request to leave the courtroom? Um, How does the state they, view the transcript of that? They, they went for break. They recessed during jury deliberations, at which point the defendant ignited that, asked that question. So up to that court. point, is there anything in the transcript that would have put the trial court on notice of any issue with the defendant? No, Your any Honor. Any conduct, slurring, slumping, sleeping, looking vacant? Was there anything that was documented in the transcript to provide the trial court with any duty to inquire on the status of the defendant? 
No, Your Honor. Prior to that point, there were no um, events that or conduct that would have put the trial court on notice that that his capacity was at issue. The defendant even testified on his own behalf. His responses, in, in accordance with the case law, were lucid and they were very responsive. They were responsive to the questions. Of course, the defendant points out the fact that he couldn't remember his uh, daughter's exact date of birth, his birth year. However, that was during cross-examination by the state and the trial court stated in his order that witnesses in his experience, witnesses tend to be that way or non-responsive when talking to and responding to questions from opposing counsel or just testifying in general. But there's nothing about his testimony that would have put the trial court on notice. There were no interactions with his defense counsel or the trial court and the trial court has sat through this entire, entire trial with the defendant. Uh, the two witnesses confirmed what they had observed uh, and the bailiff did report also that they, the EMS workers had found four 40 ounce cans in the back of the defendant's truck. Um, 40 ounce cans of? Alcohol. And, and the trial court did state in his order he inferred it to be 40 ounce counts count, cans of alcohol. Empty and cans or? He says 48, 40 ounce cans okay. in uh, the transcript. Doesn't indicate whether they were full or empty? Not specifically, no, Your Honor. Um, do the medical records indicate whether they checked his blood sugar level at the hospital? Yes, Your Honor, they do. Um, defendant's glucose level was reported once he arrived at the hospital at 84. The normal range is 70 to 100. Um, and that's on page 52 and I think page maybe 61 of the record on appeal. Um, in fact, the records show that all of defendant's levels were normal within that normal range. And those medical records are found within the record on appeal beginning at page 51. They did a CBC or something? Did they? Um, I'm not sure. Okay. But it did report all of his chemistry levels and it does provide the normal ranges and state that this within that normal range. <clears throat> does the transcript, what does the transcript? reveal about the conduct of defendant's counsel during the proceedings up until the point, up until this issue? That defendant's attorney acquiesced um, to the trial court's order for removal under 15 Prior to that time? Prior to that time. Was counsel a potted plant or was counsel effective? Uh, counsel was actively representing his client based upon review of the transcript. Um, and cross-examine witnesses and ask questions of witnesses and presented defendant's testimony as well for the jury. So um, he was aware of what's, what was going on. There was a bench conference, as I stated, prior to the time in which um, the jury was brought back in as soon as he alerted the trial court that there was a little problem. Is there any assertion the state's aware of, of any um, assertion of an ineffective assistance of counsel by the defendant? No, Your Honor. By counsel? No, Your Honor. Was that raised at the Mar hearing? No, Your Honor. So there's been no assertion that the counsel was not acting as counsel? That is correct. There's been no assertion of ineffective assistance of counsel. Your Honor, um, just You have so about three minutes, two, okay. two and a half minutes left. And just in some summary here, the defendant's conduct, he engaged in voluntary conduct. He voluntarily... Um, 
created his condition. There was no concern about his mental health prior to his attempted voluntary conduct. Um, there was no evidence, much less any substantial evidence, that he lacked capacity at the, attempt, at the time of his alleged overdose, um, that this was a situation completely created by the defendant. The defendant did not have any prior mental health history, and his state of, the trial court was able to make observations about the defendant's state of mind through his interactions with the defendant during the trial proceedings, as well as during the defendant's testimony. In fact, the next day, the defendant returned to court like normal and actually did testify, and make, not testify, but make a statement to the court on sentencing um, in the habitual felling phase and stated um, how he's, you know, done some wrong things, but he didn't do this. So he pretty made, pretty much make a, a lengthy statement at trial transcript pages 286 and 287 of the transcript. The trial court did not, um, the trial court did conduct a limited inquiry uh, by pausing the proceedings. It was not a full competency hearing, but he paused the proceedings to see what was going on. So he didn't just keep trying the case as defendant seems to assert. In fact, um, he did quite a bit and made these additional findings as to what he saw in the courtroom and what was reported to him, and that's what he made his decision based off of. Underflow, the defendant's uh, alleged overdose, overdose on voluntary conduct alone does not warrant the trial court to conduct the competency hearing where there is no prior mental health history. In light of the Supreme Court's opinion and flow, the trial court did not err by conducting a by not conducting a sua sponte competency hearing where there was not a bona fide doubt as to defendant's competency at the time of his alleged overdose or voluntary conduct. Should this court determine that the flow, that flow is not applicable and does not control in this case, this court should determine that harmless error analysis applies and that any error is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. If there are no further questions, the state will rest on its brief. No. Okay. No. Thank you, counsel. We have rebuttal from defense. Mr. Corson, welcome to the court. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you to, the, to all the bench. I apologize in advance. I don't see how I'm going to do this in four minutes. I'm going to try my best. I'll apologize in advance and ask if I, if I run out. You all, you all had so many questions. I have several things to say. I'm going to try to make four main points and address uh, some of the questions that the court answered in sort of thematically, if possible. First, a, a sort of a big overarching point is what this case is about. I mean, on, on one level, it's about whether to affirm um, a uh, Burke County guilty verdict. And of course, finality is so important in our system. It's important for the system to run. It, it's, a form for, it's important for everybody involved in a case. Uh, but on the other hand, this case is broader than that. It's also about a fair trial. It's about a fair trial for this defendant. And we are not asking for any new rules. We're asking for the application of clear, long-standing rules. Judge Tyson, you referred to balls and strikes, the famous Chief Justice Roberts comment. And we are asking the court to call balls and strikes because these are clear rules that have been around for decades. Uh, you have a right to be competent through verdict. If a doubt arises, the trial judge has a sua sponte obligation to pause, to take a recess, to take a timeout, which is exactly what happened in flow. I'd like to get back to that. Uh, in a little bit, and uh, the court has, uh, as Flo itself, uh, uh, a near unanimous opinion just last month, as Flo said, the trial court has, a, uh, has to always be alert. Flo has said that just last month, and to actively elicit information. So the trial court has a duty 
even if defense counsel, as here, is not doing anything. You, you did ask about ineffective assistance, Your Honor. The reason we did not bring that up, there was a prior MAR, a pro se MAR. That's where we got the medical records from. Mr. Minyard had to get those medical records himself at that time. But there was a prior MAR that decided on um, ineffective assistance. And so that's water under the bridge on ineffective assistance. Uh, but I agree with you, there, there are definitely some concerns about the trial counsel here, but that's, that's just not before us. Tell me why, uh, given the, this court's opinion in flow, which was affirmed by the Supreme Court, why um, neither you, I can't ask for the state, but why, why you chose not to add that authority in your briefing? Yes, Your Honor. I tried to pull it up on my laptop and I didn't have the code. I have a vague memory that at the PDR stage, the state may have brought it up, but we didn't, I don't think we had a right to do a reply at the PDR stage. And we remember, I remember with my student team looking at the time and thinking it was distinguishable. And so I, I have a, that's only a vague memory at the PDR stage. Um, here and uh, at this well, level. We just received yeah. it as a memorandum of additional authority. Yes. Even I think yesterday or maybe on Monday. Right. And so. Um, Actually Friday, but very recently. Very recently. So, um, and there was a lot of motions between the parties on possible delays to allow additional right. briefing. The court did not feel that was necessary. The opinion speaks for itself, and we felt like both parties could do a very ample and have done a very ample job of discussing flow. Where do we draw the line? So I agree with Ms. Chozek that this case is much closer to sides, and here's why I would say that, Your Honor. In um, flow, the court took a more than four-hour recess and then heard from multiple witnesses and reviewed the video of that defendant's um, um, conduct, which was jumping off a balcony one floor down in, in, the, in the prison. And according to the state in that case, he wasn't even trying to hurt himself, he put his arms and hands out, maybe it was an escape attempt, who knows. But the trial court did a lot, took most of the sixth day of trial to investigate. And that's just what the court said is appropriate, that to actively elicit information. Here in contrast, the trial court outsourced it. The trial court said, um, I'm going to send you off to the hospital and they can figure out what's wrong with you, and then did no follow-up at all. You mentioned there were four things and you're out of time, but we, we want to give you a moment just yeah. to make sure that you have mentioned those four to the court. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. So my second was really about this trial court versus flow. My third is on per se prejudice and why, and then I'll talk about harmless error. The court's really asked about both of these. Um, we contend that this has to be per se prejudicial, and there's a very important reason for that. Um, the harm is that this defendant might have been convicted, which we all agree is wrong, while incompetent. That's the harm. He may have been convicted while incompetent. How do you respond to counsels that nothing in the defendant's testimony would have put any reasonable person on notice in, in, in terms of his responses to questions or his ability to answer questions? So on one level, I disagree factually, Your Honor, but also legally. Uh, his, he, he, he testified for the longest of any witness, and he had some trouble with some really basic questions. So that's one thing. And then secondly, um, um, the trial court, before there was any report of overdose, the trial court um, noticed he was having problems, before there was any in, a report of an overdose. And then uh, more importantly, there's 
there's no requirement that you have to have had prior mental issues, either during trial or before trial. That, that line has never been drawn. It might be a factor that would in, um, militate toward doing more, but there's no requirement that you have to have shown prior problems. You just but have to- If everyone's presumed to be sane and competent, there would have to be something to trigger an inquiry into that presumption, correct? Yes, Your Honor, and in this case, it was Minier's behavior, and as this court previously found, and we do argue in the brief, and Ms. Chozik alluded to this, it's the law of the case now. This court found in 2014 that there was a bona fide doubt as to his uh, competence based on being stuporous, lethargic, unable to respond. All of that happened, and that, that put the court on notice. So, um, And then your fourth point. Right, right. So you slowed me down a little bit. I'm kidding about your question. So my, my third point, again, was prejudice per se, and that this has to be prejudicial per se because the harm is that he was convicted while incompetent. Um, my fourth point is on harmless error, which the court asked about. Um, and, you know, the, the state is relying on this being a uh, voluntary overdose, but, but the medical records just do not support that. We don't know exactly what happened, it's not, but we do, uh, Minier believes it was related, related to his uh, diabetes. We just don't know what happened. But- Do you, do you agree the medical report shows his uh, glucose levels totally within normal limits? Uh, if that's what that's there, yes, Your Honor. I have no reason to question that, yes, Your Honor. So on harmless error, my final point, Your Honor, is that this was, for one thing, um, um, the, you know, the medical records also show there was a communication barrier that he was in an altered mental state. The jury saw him lying down or at least slumped over in mid-afternoon. Imagine the effect on a jury. This defendant is, is acting like that. It, it could, it could have, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt that that affected the jury's deliberation. This was a very considered jury. They asked four questions at least. This was a jury that's noticed everything. And then, uh, even if typical, we think the harm again was that he may have been convicted while incompetent. Even under typical harmless error review, uh, this was not a case of overwhelming evidence. The state has not argued it. The, um, the MAR court did not find it. Um, this was a case with a jilted fiance, uh, a mother who, of hers who really hated Mr. Minyard, uh, a child with a mild intellectual ability and some chronic constipation and a possibly easily coachable witness. The defendant's testimony, while, it did have some, while he did have some problems with basics, uh, he did deny uh, ever doing anything wrong. Uh, the jury asked a number of questions. This was not a case of, of, of overwhelming evidence. What would you have the court to do? We would have the court, so, you know, had this been 24, if I could time travel, Your Honor, we would order a retrospective competency hearing. But we're not in 2014 anymore, of course, we're now we're in 2023. It's just too long for a retrospective competency hearing. And though, it, again, it goes against that uh, important concern about finality, we would have the court order a new trial. And I know that's an imperfect solution, but again, if you go back to what's at stake here, a fair trial and a judge being alert to problems when they arise and, and dealing with them at that time, that would be the, the, the most just result at this time. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Um, Ms. Lawrence, Ms. Chosek, did I say that right this time? <laughs> okay, we uh, appreciate uh, uh, Mr. Kozan, thank you all for your arguments today. The case is submitted. We appreciate uh, the audience being here today. You had quite a um, 
opportunity to, to demonstrate good skills before the court, and we thank you both for doing that. And uh, Mr. Bailiff, uh, will you please adjourn court?